Welcome to the Martinskirk Podcast, a publication of sermons and lessons from Trinity Reformed Church of Martinsburg. Trinity Reformed exists to declare the victory of Jesus Christ through worship and practice to the ends of the earth. To learn more about our congregation, visit martinskirk.com. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the journey that we were able to take this morning to your mountaintop, Jerusalem, the heavenly city. And I pray as we sit here among, uh, among other Christians and among people who have been the gift of your Holy Spirit, sitting before your throne, I pray that you would instruct us through your word. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We can often think of meekness as being synonymous with being weak or soft. I used to think of it this way. In fact, I think a lot of people, when pressed on this definition, would have some sort of similar, uh, similar thought. I made the mistake of using a Lord of the Rings reference before in a sermon, and I'm going to make that same mistake this morning. I don't know how many of you read the books, and I probably asked this last time, uh, but I'm pretty sure that everyone here has seen the movies, at least one of them. And if you haven't read the books, I'd encourage you to do so, because if you don't, then the sermon illustration will be a little bit uh, less appealing. But in the movies, Frodo, played by Elijah Wood, is portrayed as an inexperienced, soft, young hobbit. And throughout the films, his weakness is made into his strength. And that's, that's good enough. That's true enough. But we can often think of meekness like Elijah Wood's Frodo. That is an inward disposition, some sort of frame of mind. A frame of mind that is compassionate, and compassionate almost to a fault. He has a hard time making decisions, taking stands, discerning enemies, protecting friends, etc., etc. But this is not Tolkien's Frodo. Tolkien's Frodo is strong, he's brave, he's commanding, and he's responsible. He's afflicted with many trials, and he carries these trials and these amazing burdens well. And these burdens are certainly too much to bear alone. But he knows this, and he sets on his course with confidence and with faith. This is true meekness. This is what meekness looks like. This is what humility in the form of meekness looks like. Meekness isn't an inward disposition. It's not a frame of mind. Necessarily, To be meek is to be placed into an affliction, to be physically depressed, and to be long-suffering and confident in that calling. It is a real social calling, meekness is. And meekness isn't Jackson's moaning Frodo, but Tolkien's long-suffering and strong Frodo. Meekness isn't the absence of bravery and strength, but just the opposite. So when our Lord says that the weak are made strong, He isn't speaking metaphorically. He really means that the weak are made strong, and they are made strong by faith. As Paul says about those who have been justified by faith and who endure tribulations in Romans chapter 5, he says this, We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts 
by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So the meek are those who have been set apart to endure trials and to endure oppression, usually poverty, usually some sort of various other afflictions. In fact, the Hebrew word for meek, for the, the root word for meek or meekness, actually means a physical depression, an oppression. But those who are oppressed endure these trials in humble faith. We learned last week from Habakkuk that the just shall live by his faith. But now we come to Zephaniah, who tells us what that looks like firsthand. What that looks like firsthand. Christians, though, even for a short time, will always experience affliction in their lives. And Zephaniah shows us how we are to live our lives when we are marked by these afflictions. When we are set apart, when we are called to be meek. Our Lord is even depicted as one who loves us, who comforts us, and who even sings over us. But this is only after he has utterly destroyed the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the surrounding nations in jealous wrath. So he is perfect justice and perfect love. And we are to be bold in our proclamation of that justice and humble in our dependence upon our Lord. So let us turn to the scriptures to Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah pens this prophecy during the reign of Josiah, king of Judah. And if you'll remember, Josiah was actually a good king who enacted a bunch of reforms in Judah, uh, tearing down high places and things of that nature. In fact, he not only tore down high places, he also killed off most of the false prophets and priests and heretics in the land. But Zephaniah is writing this book possibly after the 18th year of Josiah's reign. And there's a lot of historical diagrams and, and pins to put to, to bring that about, that 18th year. But it's possibly around the 18th year of Josiah's reign. He's writing this to a Judah who had previously been reformed, just under a generation earlier, had previously been reformed, but a remnant of people who worshipped false gods like Baal, like Milcom, which is another name for Molech, and other pagan gods had popped up once again. So Zephaniah comes from a long line of influential men. If you'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 1, he's the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. He comes from royal blood. He's no slouch when it comes to importance. His words were taken seriously in Judah. And this is more, there's more to Zephaniah as well. For example, his name means the Lord has hidden or the Lord has and we will, we will see later why this is interesting. But let's start with chapter 1 of the book. And like other minor prophets, Zephaniah comes out swinging. He says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. And later he says... That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. So what Zephaniah is describing here is a decreation of Jerusalem. 
of Jerusalem, the place where the place where Yahweh actually dwelled among his people, high in his temple, the house of the Lord. And this is because the temple was a microcosm of the world around you. It had three levels as well. The temple was a microcosm. When a, when a high priest, for example, went through the Day of Atonement rituals, what did he do? Well, he started, he would pass through the outer courts, and that's where the washings and the slaughtering took place of the animals. And then he moved into the holy place, and that's where light, bread, and incense was. And then he moved into the most holy place. And that's where the throne of Yahweh was between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. So it was a movement from sea to land to heavens. The temple was a of the whole world. In that later passage just, just mentioned earlier, the, the day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress. If you count those days in the description of those days, it comes out to six. The number of days of creation. And this is important because it helps us understand why Jerusalem is always being judged. Why is it that that the Lord seems to start with Jerusalem? And why when Jerusalem is judged, the prophets use creation language? Zephaniah says that Yahweh will consume man and beast. That's the land. The birds of the heavens, obviously the heavens. And the fish of the sea, the sea. When he judges Jerusalem and even describes this judgment again using that sixfold poem that we just read in verses 15 and 16. Judah has grieved Yahweh so much that he's starting over. That's, that's what he wants to convey to you. And neither priest, nor prince, nor king, nor merchant, nor rich man will escape this wrath. So gold and silver have no sway in the judgments of God. He shows no partiality. And this day of the Lord that Zephaniah describes, that he's speaking about, though he doesn't say it explicitly in this book, is really the day of the Babylonian conquest. However, like other prophets, these prophecies mirror the judgments on Israel by way of the Romans in AD 70, and ultimately the final day of the Lord, which is proclaimed every Sunday morning when we meet together, and will happen at the end of history when our Lord Jesus comes back. So what happens to the center of the world, to Jerusalem, at this time in history, will happen truly when our Lord comes to judge the living and the dead, and to usher in his everlasting kingdom on earth, as the creed say. But like every judgment on the world, Yahweh preserves a remnant, a new people to possess this new world that he will create. One can think of Noah and his family, Abraham and his family, Lot out of Sodom, the sons of Israel after the judgment in the wilderness, and on and on. This is the pattern of God, judging the world and preserving the faithful. But there's obviously something unique about Zephaniah. What he emphasizes is unique. After the, after the Lord judges all of the earth, who does he preserve? We'll see later that he preserves the meek specifically. Zephaniah, after declaring Yahweh's judgments on Jerusalem, and before he declares the judgment on the surrounding nations, he pauses for an altar call, which is our sermon text this morning, in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, 
Seek humility. It may be that you may be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So Zephaniah, the hidden one, the one hidden by God, is declaring not just to Jerusalem or Judah, but to the whole earth, that they should seek the Lord so that they would be hidden in God. Now we can often think of God when presented to us in the Old Testament scriptures as a God who only saves ethnic Israel. And this was emphatically not the case. This was not the case. The Lord has always saved by grace through faith. This will not change and this has not changed. He chose a specific people, the nation of Israel, to be representatives on behalf of the world with certain privileges regarding worship and contact with God. But he has always saved believing Gentiles. This has always been who God is. The Lord here in in Zephaniah is making the same call to the earth. Come to me in faith and you will be saved. Not only are the faithful of all the nations going to be saved, but the wicked of all nations will be judged. So as we've been moving through these minor prophets, this has been a common theme as well. That Yahweh doesn't seem to leave anyone out. He, He always covers all bases. He says in Zephaniah, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon with which they have approached my people. So he begins to describe the destruction of these people in detail, sparing no one but the meek. Now how often have you heard people spread lies about you, slander you, mock or ridicule you? So you may not experience this every day. You may have only experienced it a few times but I think you know how that feels. It could be as simple, as simple as work relationships. Your boss doesn't give you credit for what you've done. Your coworker lies about your performance. It could be relatives, maybe non-Christian or even Christian relatives, who treat you poorly or shame you. It could be as trivial as Facebook friends Disagreeing with you all the time and looking for an argument every, every time you post something on social media. Whatever it is, you've experienced to some degree, no matter how small it may be, some degree you've experienced this feeling. You've experienced ridicule, mockery. And if you haven't, then there's probably a problem. If you haven't experienced that before, there may be a problem. And we may, in fact, experience this more and more on a grander scale in the years to come. Some have lost their jobs over homophobia or xenophobia. Christians have been publicly humiliated for holding just plain orthodox Christian views that have been held by countless Christians since Jesus and countless more since Adam. Our children will experience even worse than us at this rate. But our Lord Lord Jesus tells us that he hears these things. He hears them. He's not, he's not just off on his own doing his own work. He hears us. He knows what is happening and he has seen and heard every abuse and every lie against his people. So the promise in Zephaniah chapter 2 is that God is not mocked. He hears your cries. He, he sees your hurt. He will judge evildoers at his appointed time. And we know this theme rather well, I hope, throughout all these prophets. But it's a good reminder 
that our Lord never forgets us. And he not only does not forget us, but after he lays bare the nations, he promises the land and the possessions of these nations to his remnant. In Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom, and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. So Yahweh goes on to include the Ethiopians and Assyrians in this judgment as well. The whole earth, as Israel knew it, was to be given to the remnant of God's people. And who is this remnant? Again, as our sermon text this morning says, Seek the Lord of the earth, who have upheld my justice. The meek are the remnant of the people of God, the meek. The meek will inherit the nations. And this goes along with what our Lord Jesus said in his famous poem that kicked off the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The hidden one is letting us know to be hid, in order to be hidden from the wrath of God on the day of the Lord, and to inherit the kingdom of heaven that is established on earth in the person and work of Christ, we must be meek. We must be meek. St. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. That is, seek righteousness... Seek humility, and you will be hidden under the mighty hand of God on the day of the Lord. So our call to salvation is to lay aside our pride. It's to lay aside our unrighteousness, our wickedness, for the righteousness only found in God. And St. James in James chapter 1 says it this way, very similarly. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness... The implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, you don't, you don't really know someone truly or fully, and I'm pretty convinced of this, until you see that person go through some sort of trial. Until they're pressed on whatever they say they believe. You don't truly know if they truly believe it. And the meek, the oppressed, the afflicted, Respond to their affliction with trust and joy in Yahweh, not with pride and not with self-allegiance. The first will be last and the last first. And this is because God gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. This is who God is. This is in his nature. The proud say that God is indifferent to the world. That God is not truly God. The proud are complacent. As Zephaniah says. Zephaniah 1.12 says, The Lord nor will he do evil. And he's talking about the proud. This is their response to God. He doesn't do good. He doesn't do evil. He's indifferent. The meek, on the other hand, know that they are but dust. The meek accept their affliction with faith, knowing that God does do good. 
and will judge the wicked on the day of the Lord. They don't view God indifferently. The meek are hidden with Christ in God when that judgment comes because they sought righteousness and not worldly pleasures. So Zephaniah ends this book with the joy of the salvation of the Lord. And he says that Yahweh will restore to the peoples a pure language. That they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. So he will bring all his people together to praise Yahweh on his holy mountain, on Jerusalem. And this pure language that he speaks of, this pure language is the worship of God's people. It's a liturgical language of the people of God. As his bride, as the bride of Christ, we speak the words of our Lord and husband, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. And we speak those words back to him. That's what we do this morning. We speak those words back to him. So this pure language is the worship of God's people. And Yahweh also promises to leave in your midst a meek and humble people. And they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies. Nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. So the language of God's people will be pure and righteous, not polluted with the language of other gods, not competing ideologies, not competing worldviews, not polluted with the world, but marked by the holy word of Yahweh. In that day, Zephaniah says, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice with singing. This is not... The response of a weak God, but a truly loving God. He upholds you with He quiets your cries with His love. He lifts your spirit with His, with his singing over you. Our Lord gathers you here to joy over you in His gladness. To quiet you with His love. To rejoice over you with His singing. He gathers the lame. He gathers the afflicted, the depressed, the downtrodden, the outcasts, the sinners. In other words, he gathers you. He gathers you. As Paul says, in such were some of you. He gathers all of you, all those who, whom God has called to himself. And he calls you to meekness. He doesn't call you to be soft. He doesn't call you to be cowardly or weak. He calls you to be meek, to boldly give your burdens to Christ, to hide in Him. So what does this mean for the world around us? How does blessed are the meek, how does that phrase change our perspective when dealing with others? What does this mean for Martinsburg? What does this mean for your neighbors? Well, first of all, it looks a lot like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Our Lord was the definition of meekness. When confronted by the Pharisees and Sadducees, did he shy away from the truth? These are rhetorical questions. Of course not. No, in fact, they sought to kill him and kill him often. Did he moan and groan his way through trials and persecutions? No, in fact, he silently went before Pilate and the Jewish authorities all the way to his death. 
Did he seek to usurp the authorities by physical means? He went the way of righteousness and sacrifice. Does this sound like weakness to you? So when you are ridiculed, when you're mocked for the faith, do not return evil for evil. When you are persecuted and humiliated for the faith, do not return evil for evil. And when given the opportunity to talk about your faith with your neighbors, be honest. Just say it like it is. Christ has come to save sinners. Be bold. Be honest. Be upfront with them. I don't know how many times in my life previously where a question would, would arise regarding my faith, usually at work or something, and I'd respond with it, yeah, you know, Jesus came to, to die for your sins. And, but, you know, I don't, you, know, you get kind of wishy-washy and you don't want to cause too much of a ruckus. Don't be like that. Be honest. Be clear. Be upfront with those who inquire about your faith. Nothing they do, nothing they say, can take the inheritance that our Lord has promised you. Nothing they do or say can do that. In fact, in, in the ancient world, uh, when they were persecuted in, in the Colosseums or by, uh, by opposing religions, oftentimes those religions would burn their bodies and say, Aha! You can't be raised from the grave, right? But the Christians knew. They knew when they were persecuted. They knew when they were afflicted. That, that, that the inheritance that they've been promised through Christ was always guaranteed. St. Peter assures us of this inheritance by saying that it is kept in heaven for us. It's kept out of our lives so that when we are afflicted, when we are, are persecuted... That it's safe. It's kept for us in heaven. And this is something we need to hear more and more in our day. As Paul said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The answer to that question is a loud, resounding, harmonious no. No, those will not separate us from the love of Christ. So like Tolkien's Frodo, we are called to the hard life. We are called to live a life marked by the life of Christ. A life that is given totally to the service of God. And though they don't know or want it, to the service of the world. We are representatives on behalf of God to the world. We all carry burdens. And when we come here together, we not only carry the burdens of one another. We carry the world. We all experience trials, but it is your duty to go out into your workplaces, into your co-ops, into your neighborhoods, into your world, and interact with those around you with humility and meekness. Know that whenever the world mocks you, scorns you, or hurts you, it is better to be bold, it is better to be honest and meek than to give in to the lies of this world, to defile the pure language that our Lord has given you. If you are in the kingdom of God, and I can tell everyone here who has been baptized has been brought into the kingdom of God. If you are in the kingdom of God, then you have been given a calling. A calling to live a life, a life hidden with Christ and God. A life dedicated to the service of God and others. A life dedicated to being last. And what does our Lord promise us 
if we have been given this life? Well, in Zephaniah, he says it at the end of his, uh, of his poetic uh, climax of Zephaniah in chapter 3. He says, exaltation and glory. That is what is promised to us. Exaltation and glory in our Lord Jesus Christ. He promises life and life abundantly. He promises the world to us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.